Uh, fantastic. Well, it is um, it's great to be with you again at um, G2. My name is, is Ewan. I've been here as part of the church for about four years now. And last week, Christian spoke on um, I am the light of the world. And today I'm going to continue this series. This week I'm speaking on another of the, the I am's. And Jesus said, I am the resurrection and life. Anyone who believes in me will live, even though they die. Let me start by saying, I passionately, passionately believe that this statement has the power to change everything. As C.S. Lewis, the author of the Chronicles of Narnia, said, in reviewing the statements of Jesus, in reviewing these I am's, he says, this is such a profoundly outlandish statement to make, that Jesus is either one of three things. Either he is mad... He honestly believes that he is the resurrection, but actually he's just, just deluded. Maybe he is uh, bad. He fully knows that he's not the resurrection and the life, but he wants people to follow him. And so therefore bears false witness. He therefore gives them false hope. Or maybe there's a third option. Maybe, just maybe, C.S. Lewis says, Jesus is who he says he is. And if Jesus was who he says he is, then indeed for me that changes everything. The Archbishop of Canterbury recently said this, we are living in a time of uncertainty. But there's nothing new about that. The world is always uncertain. And indeed, we do live in a time of uncertainty, economic uncertainty, political uncertainty. In fact, we live in a world where the strength of our global security is certainly uncertain. However, one of the greatest uncertainties of life is in fact the only certainty. The fact that at some point in time, our death is, is certain. The certainty that, that death at some point will come fills many with uncertainty of what will happen. Imagine if we were to, to interview people in the street or what do you think happens when you die? Many people would give an answer around something like this. I, th I think I know what might happen but I don't want to be certain. I imagine a few would be assured of where they're going. In fact, it's likely that only those of faith might be able to say with some degree of certainty where they are going. Death leaves us very uncertain. And this theme of resurrection and, and life is, is, is one that runs right throughout the Bible. Let's wrap a little bit of context around these words of Jesus. Um, these words are said in a time of, of, of great sadness. They're said in a time of great mourning. Lazarus has, has died and he's been laid in a tomb and he's been there for a little while. And Jesus is in town and, and Martha, Lazarus' sister, says, Lord, if, if only you'd been there, my brother would not be dead. And Jesus says, your brother will rise again. And Martha says, yeah, I know that he will rise in, in the end days, in the last days with everybody else. And then Jesus says these words. I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even though they die. As Jesus goes back to Lazarus' tomb, he tells him to get up, to arise. And Lazarus is brought back from the dead. 
There was once a family baptism. A cousin of ours was being baptised and she'd invited all her friends to come and see the baptism. uh, To come to the church to hear what the preacher would say. And the preacher decided to speak on the topic of Lazarus. Fairly reasonable in a baptism, I would imagine. And as he's telling the story with all seriousness, he gets to the resurrection part and his thick Welsh accent, he bellows, And Lazarus arose, and behold... He hath stingeth. The room went dead. And then suddenly a rocking of laughter occurred. And how on earth this gentleman managed to salvage any poignant message, I will never know. But the Old Testament is also filled with these stories that point to the resurrection. Job, who lost absolutely everything, cried out in hope, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. Job hoped beyond all hope that one day God would make things right. I had a friend, just on a side note, who went for a job interview. And um, he went for a job interview at quite a well-known Christian holiday company. And um, he was asked as part of the interview, what book of the Bible are you currently reading? Um, in your quiet times. And he wasn't. He wasn't reading anything. And so he went for the first book of the Bible that he could remember. He, he could have opted for Matthew. He could have opted for Mark, Luke, John. Maybe even Genesis. But in, in his infinite wisdom, he opted for Job. So they asked him, what are you learning through this book? And he thought for a second. And trying to scramble together anything he could remember, he then delivered this pearl of a quote. Throughout all Job went through, throughout everything he faced, I have drawn inspiration from the fact that he never once questioned God. I'm just going to let the theologians in you just take that over for a little bit. Even with that diabolic answer, he, he got the job. <laughs> Hebrews 11 tells us that Abraham, when God tested his faith on the mountain, expected that the Lord would raise his son. Isaac from the dead. In Ezekiel, when it seemed like Israel was gone forever, when it had been exiled to Babylon without a home and without a temple, God spoke of the promise of the resurrection to his people. When the Lord gave Daniel a vision of the world's end, Daniel said, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to, to shame and everlasting contempt. As we review these examples of of the hope of this resurrection, a very clear theme runs throughout each one. The resurrection and new life is a turning point. It's a point where the change happens. It's where a situation that at one point seemed hopeless and in despair is restored to make way for new hope and new life. I don't think the message is uh, any more prominent than the story of Zacchaeus as the kids uh, read to us earlier. This Wednesday I gave the exact same talk as now. It it was in a room not too much bigger than this. Um, It was in front of a group of committed parishioners at their local church service. Uh, This uh, parish happened to be uh, Pentonville Prison. 
And some of the individuals sat in front of me in that room were people who'd committed some of the most horrendous crimes. Manslaughter, murder, um, and some other real heinous offences. And as I thought, well, well, how do I make the message of today relevant to these two different audiences? I was profoundly challenged by the fact that the resurrection of Jesus remains unchanged. It it remains unchanged whether you've been in prison for 25 years or you've been in the church for 25 years. The message of the resurrection is unchanged now as it was 2,000 years ago. And I pray as we look at the, the words of the story of Zacchaeus that they would permeate into each of our hearts as we discover more about Jesus' resurrection and his life. Zacchaeus is this unlikely Bible character. Um, He's not the most popular individual around. In fact, he's probably the the least popular individual around. He's a tax collector, and he takes people's taxes, and even if he just turned up to do his job, uh, people aren't really inclined to, to like him. However, he doesn't just do his job. We know that he takes um, his own cut of the money. We know that he adds a few percent on for himself. He decides to top up his wage more than he should. And so this guy is he's hated. He is despised in the town where he lives. Uh, Jesus is in town and, and Zacchaeus is uh, desperate to see him. Uh, but Zacchaeus is, is short. And I am short, and so I know how this lad feels. Uh, He can't see through the crowd, and he can't see what is going on. But he is intrigued by what Jesus has to say. And so he does the only thing he can, the Bible says. He climbs up a sycamore tree to try to see Jesus. After a while, Jesus notices Zacchaeus and, and calls him down and says, Today I must eat at your house. And there's a couple of fascinating things about this story. Firstly, there are many, many people Jesus could have picked out. We know there are many people because Jesus couldn't see through the crowds. He could have picked out anybody. Yet he goes towards Zacchaeus. He could have picked anybody, but yet he picks out Zacchaeus, the most disliked, the most ungodly, the most destructive. And you know what? I thought I was good at inviting myself up for dinner. Jesus takes this to the next level. Today I'm going to eat at your house. I might try that when I call it biblical. Secondly, Jesus and Zacchaeus have never met. And yet Jesus calls Zacchaeus out by name. Trust me, I know the importance of getting a name right. My name is Ewan, spelled the Welsh way, I-W-A-N. My brother is called Davith. And this means that we very rarely receive a Christmas card with both names spelt correct. Um, Some people get one right. Some don't get anything right. My great aunt goes for a different combination every time. If there was an X and J and she called me Juan, I would not be uh, surprised. Other of our friends, the smarter of our friends, you could say, go for the classic Rich Ruth and boys. They think they're being subtle, but we know their game. But yet Jesus knows Zacchaeus by name. And this may be far more significant than we thought. 
But Jesus' actions leave this crowd incensed. They are absolutely living. In South Wales, we call this raging, right? They were absolutely raging. One man asks, why has God, why has Jesus gone to eat at the house of a sinner? When there are all these good people about, why has he gone to the house of a sinner? And Jesus says, listen, listen, you just don't quite get it. I have come to call, not those who think they are righteous, not those who think they are good enough, but those who know they are sinners and are in need of repentance. Jesus says, I've not come to those who match up to a certain standard. Some of you will have been here recently when I spoke about forgiveness and and the sliding scale of forgiveness. Nobody matches up to the standards that God has for us. But in this encounter, we see that Jesus changes Zacchaeus' perspective and also changes his life. We read later that Zacchaeus decides to sell half of his possessions and give that money to the poor. And then he decides to pay back four times the amount that he has taken. This encounter between Jesus and Zacchaeus is the start of making things new. And, and this is something we often refer to in the, in the Bible. Jesus makes uh, all things new. And sometimes, actually, to say this is sometimes unhelpful. Because the power and the resurrection of the life that Jesus brings isn't a declutter. It's not some form of clear out two trips to Ikea and an afternoon at the garden centre. It, it's more than that. It is more than that. It's a process of restoration. Making all things new. And we see throughout the Bible that, that, that Jesus gives people uh, new names. Simon becomes Peter, the rock on which Jesus will build his church. We see that a little while after the death and resurrection of Jesus, Saul becomes Paul. But fascinatingly, this doesn't happen to Zacchaeus. There is no mention that Zacchaeus leaves with a new name. We know he leaves changed. There is no mention of a new name. His encounter with Jesus doesn't leave him with a new name, but it leaves him with a name restored. It leaves him with a name made new. The name Zacchaeus actually means clean and pure. And Zacchaeus had spent most of his life living in a way that was totally contradictory to his name. He'd spent a life that was far from purity. But in this encounter with Jesus, everything changes. The message of the gospel of Christ, the message of the resurrection remains unchanged. But when received and lived out, it changes everything. I spoke a little earlier about the um, examples of the resurrection in the Bible, especially within the Old Testament. As we look over those stories, the hope and the resurrection was always coupled with an expectation. The expectation that the tribe of Israel would one day return after being exiled to Babylon. The expectation that the coming Messiah would free God's people from the oppression they were under. But this expectation was was always matched with some form of uncertainty. As we heard on Palm Sunday, uh, many who'd expected Jesus to rule on that day were, were faced with the uncertainty of what happened when there was a thoroughly disappointing Good Friday, to put it mildly. 
Jesus, who the Bible describes in, in, as, a, as an archegos, in, in English we get our words ruler, chief, leader, the kind of hero, the kind of Legolas uh, character who comes riding over the hill to win the battle, was crucified. This archegos was crucified. An expectation that he would save was then left with uncertainty. For many, their expectation had turned to anger. The crowds who once followed him turned on him. The ones who once shouted hallelujah now shouted crucify him. Their expectations not being met led to uncertainty over whether Jesus really was who he said he was. Or in fact, could he have been mad? Or in fact, could he have indeed been bad? And I said at the start that that this this message of the resurrection and life that Jesus calls us, that I believe it changes everything. But so far I've not provided with the evidence needed to adequately support this statement. But the words of Jesus, I am the resurrection and the life, were spoken at a time of grieving. They were spoken during a time of mourning. They were spoken during a time when despair was at its greatest and expectation at its least. Yet these words were coupled with an action. Words of hope and life coupled with the action of Jesus calling Lazarus to rise from the dead and leave the tomb. An incredible miracle that's far surpassed their dwindling expectation. And we know that Jesus himself went to the cross. And in dying and rising again, we see Jesus fulfilling all expectation. Destroying uncertainty, replacing it with a certainty that because of his resurrection, though we die, we live. And the creed tells us he suffered death and was buried. On the third day he rose again in accordance with the scriptures, he ascended into heaven. But for me, here is one of the big clues as to why everything changes. I'm a criminologist by background. And the creed, though accurate in its wording, actually leaves us with something that would alarm even the most hardened of criminologists out there. 40 days unaccounted for. 40 days in which the risen Jesus appeared as a gardener and comforted a grieving Mary. 40 days in which the risen Jesus meets his disciples on the road to Emmaus in their midst of their despair. 40 days in which the risen Jesus confronted the doubts of Thomas, asking him to carry out what's probably the first and last live autopsy. 40 days in which the risen Jesus meets with his friends and commissions them to go and make disciples of all nations. And the resurrection changed everything, therefore, because it meant that it is finished. The risen Jesus demonstrates the power of God made visible and dwelling amongst us. On on Monday morning, when I'm sitting at my desk, the resurrection means that I can live a bold existence, safe in the knowledge that it is finished and Jesus has won. It, It frees me to live out God's plan and purpose my life with a hope and a certainty that death is not the end, but a continuation of eternity with Christ in a place where I am certain that there is no more pain, no more suffering, no more tears, where everything is restored. 
in times of my mourning, the resurrection means that the risen and living Jesus can meet me where I am at and comfort me. It means that when I doubt the risen Jesus says, put your hands in the nail marks, see the spear mark in my side and promises me that he is with me till the end of the age. And living out the resurrection causes us to live differently. The resurrection isn't, isn't some form of insurance policy where we cover our backs should anything happen to us. But the resurrection is an assurance of salvation. That the uncertainty of death is, is no longer uncertain. But we have a hope and a certainty of eternal life through his death and his resurrection. Friends, I, I really find what's going on across the global church at the moment a challenge. Fighting over church policy, arguing over denominational dogma, it, it really does make me cringe. But in my heart, I am more convinced than ever of this, that the world needs to hear the message of the resurrection. They need to hear that there is a hope of eternity in Jesus. That the situation they are in, that Jesus can come and restore. That their brokenness can be made whole in Christ. More than ever it sees my friends who have a complete uncertainty about what's going to happen when they die. Live as though it just doesn't matter. And so to finish uh, today, and we're going to go into a time of extended worship. I want to say that I don't think the resurrection was ever meant to be the complex theological concept we've made it to be. I don't think that God ever intended it to be something that we have subjected such extensive academic explanation and religious pondering. I wanted to try and draw this message into one simple sentence. I tried desperately to do so until I was reminded of a song by Stuart Townend, See What a Morning, that does it so well. And we are raised with him. Death is dead. Love has won. Christ has conquered. Let me read those words before I pray once again. And we are raised with him. Death is dead. Love has won. And the hope, the certainty that Christ has, not is, but Christ has conquered. Let's pray.